Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hey guys, welcome back. This is Pastor Zach. And Pastor Mark. And we hope that you enjoyed our first episode where we talked about some of the dichotomies that we encounter in the Christian life. And today we're going to be looking at what I guess could be considered another dichotomy um, because it, it, it brings us into so many other uh, situations and having to think through different uh, uh, forks in the road, <laughs> so to speak. And so that... that uh, discussion is going to be about evangelicalism. And the question that we're going to be trying to answer today is whether or not Reformed Christians are evangelical in the proper sense. This is a particularly uh, interesting conversation because I think for for many years now, um, the Reformed world has understood itself to be more or less firmly within the evangelical World, when we think about some of the major evangelical leaders, particularly of the 20th century, we we think of men that are uh, some of them are reformed themselves. So we would think of Carl Henry or Francis Schaeffer, J.I. Packer, and so and John Stott. And so we would see ourselves in some sort of uh, similarity with them, and and in that way we would understand ourselves being evangelical, um, but. More and more, I think this has become an, a, a fraught issue, and we find ourselves uh, in, in some controversy here. And so we wanted to talk about what this word evangelical means, and then also, of course, how we find our own personal attachment to it or not. Um, and then we're going to, I think, finish by trying to give some an overview of laying out how we as Christians in the 21st century uh, should understand ourselves regarding this term, this very fraught and contentious term. So we'll start out, I guess, with definitions. Um, now, this is an interesting question. Uh, what does evangelicalism mean? There's books on this, full books, and there's nobody that has a definitive answer, but there has been a sort of consensus coming to four main points. So, Mark, yeah. would you share with us what those four main points are? Well, yeah, and maybe even before you get into the the technical terms, I think it's one of those things where you kind of know it when you see it. That's you know, a good point. And, That's a good point. And so if one were to go to a PCUSA church um, or a Methodist church or, you know, <laughs> a mainline church, I think that you could walk into a church and after about 15 minutes of a church service would be able to say, this seems evangelical to yeah. me. Um, or you would say, no, this seems more liberal mainline to me. It might even take 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, right. And so... Um, it's, it's caught a little bit more than taught, you might say. That's a good point, um, yeah. Uh, but if one were to try to nail down the distinctive markers of evangelicalism, I just did a little research, and I know 
this this even is contentious to look at Wikipedia for such information, but <laughs> uh, but I did, and um, I think there's a pretty good definition there given by um, a guy named uh, David Babington or Bebbington, and um, he's quoted in that article as saying evangelicalism is about conversionism, meaning emphasizing the need to be born again. Um, mm-hmm. It is about biblicism, which is about uh, holding the scriptures, the Bible, in high regard for our doctrine and life. Uh, the third distinguishing marker is a very big word that we'll unpack for a moment, crucicentrism, mm-hmm. which um, you hear the word cross in there a little bit, that we talk frequently um, about the death of Jesus Christ, and hopefully that would also include the resurrection of Christ. Yeah. Um, but uh, there is certainly crucicentrism in the evangelical church. Yeah, lay your sins at the foot of the cross. Right. Come to the cross. Are you washed in the blood? You know, mm-hmm. um, all those types of things. Precious is the um, blood. Right. Uh, oh, the wonderful cross. Yeah. Um, and uh, that is an evangelical value, certainly. And that's almost, that's definitely one that is um, observed and felt. Um, in a worship service, uh, it's not just a doctrinal statement, hmm. but there would be many churches that would say crucicentrism matters. But right. You could yeah. go to three weeks of worship services and probably never hear about <laughs> how Jesus died for your sins. Yeah. Um, so even some scholars would would fall into that. So yeah. and then lastly, he he includes activism. So there's a certain, um, you would say way of living mm-hmm. that would be evangelical that would be active in i think the reference is probably to be active in your faith and not just activism in the political sense but to say now that you're mm. a christian you need to act like a christian yeah hopefully this is the reformational principle of being saved by by faith alone and not by works but that right. your works are a result of the faith that lives within you that abides so you know do you think james 2 for example, faith without works is dead. So the Christian life is, yeah, we should be active in our Christian life and participating in good deeds. Um, now, this is often motivated in evangelicals, I think, for lots of different reasons. For the Reformed yeah. tradition, it's generally it's going back to gratitude. Gratitude for God for what he has done to you and out of faith. It's the obedience of faith. We have faith in Christ, and so through our faith in him, we obey him, we follow him, we we pick up our cross daily and, and, and walk after him. Um, some parts of the evangelical world more broadly, I think a lot of this activism is either influenced by a, a tendency towards social justice. And that's, that's a term that's way thrown around way too much, but it applies here. I think um, it's also, I think maybe I'm stepping out on a ledge here, but I think it's a uh, influenced or motivated by a, a sort of inherent premillennialism in the evangelical church um, that we have to hold things back from getting worse and worse. They're going to get worse. It's everything's going to go bad, but we have to conserve that badness and prevent it from getting worse and worse. And so what we need to do is sort of vote this way, live this way and not let ourselves be corrupted. The culture war. Yeah, exactly. Fight so the culture war. Premillennialism, activism, um, and I think that, that that sort of fear or anxiety is is latent there within the uh, evangelical worldview. 
Yeah, and I think um, Bebbington did a pretty good job here with some of the distinguishing markers. Again, yeah, I would agree. Conversionism, biblicism, crucicentrism, and activism. That seems to me that uh, in, in evangelical church, for example, would be very interested in sending their youth on a serve project. Right. Yeah. And missions um, trips. And I know that other mainline non-evangelical churches are interested in those kinds of things as well. But there's a kind of almost a rite of passage, I would mm. say, in an evangelical church. You got to go on serve. Yeah. You got to do something to show that you're really a Christian or in mm -hmm, schools, mm -hmm. Christian schools that are more evangelical in nature, there will be um, an emphasis also on serving the community. Yep, um, service hours. Yeah, <laughs> to, to get those service hours in. Um, and I wonder a little bit if that is becoming legalistic, but yeah. hopefully could have the foundation of connecting faith to action. So yeah. Um, yeah. I think that those are some good starting points, but maybe another one yeah, that I would add. Yeah, someone we could add to this? Yeah, I, I would say another one that I would add is that the polity, that is the church governance structure of the typical evangelical church is congregationalist. So um, maybe for those who wouldn't know what some of those bigger words mean, <laughs> congregationalist means that the local church is what makes decisions. Um, the local church is where the budget goes. Um, the local church is the, the hub, the axis of ministry. Yeah, um, often this can be pastoralist, you could say. Yeah, absolutely. The pastor is sort of the pope of the church, in a sense. Oh, man, I, I talked with somebody in the prison, um, and so I go to the prison on Wednesdays, and um, not now during COVID, of course, but before that I was, and they said, how long has your church been around? And I'm 38 years old, and so they figured, I would say, about 10 years. You know, <laughs> like, I got out of seminary, and I started mm -hmm. a church, because that's just the way so many evangelical people think is yeah. the church is the pastors. And, totally. and so I said, totally. my church has been there for 40 years. And they're like, wow. And I'm like, yeah, I'm the sixth pastor. <laughs> the church of... is bigger than me. It's more important than me. And it's <laughs> going to last longer than me. Well, and, and then I said, you know, we have a neighboring sister church that had just celebrated their hundredth anniversary. That's first CRC here in Ripon. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, and they've had, you know, probably 20 pastors or mm -hmm. maybe 15 or 18. I don't know exactly, but they're like, they couldn't even imagine that a church had been around for more wow. than 100 years. Hmm. Um, and so I think that is That's an interesting the downside, example. you'd probably say, of a congregationalist mentality, a pastor-centric mm -hmm. um, way of looking at the church. Now, this is in varying degrees, of course. We are a part of a denomination, and yep. um, just like uh, Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists are part of it, but... But each of those has varying degrees of how congregationalist they are. For example, I had a pastor mm. friend who was a Baptist pastor before, and he basically said, once your church decides they don't want you as a pastor, you're fired. Mm. And so they're so congregationalist that they, they almost function like a little business with yeah. no best practices or operating procedures for how church should go. Um, yeah. And so the, the whim of the of the congregation, oh yeah. it's it's democratic, even we would say not and even so republic just, democratic. <laughs> <laughs> right. They would just say a vote of the church is yeah. the will of God. Right. And so mm. um, generally speaking, I think that that's probably true. 
Yeah, I mean, congregationalist is very similar to what we call non-denominationalism. Right. And basically every non-denominational church is congregationalist inherently because the seat of power is the church itself. Now, I think what Mark is describing is where in those congregational churches or those non-denominational churches where the power lies. So some of them really, it's a sort of a pyramid scheme uh, or the pastor on top of the pyramid. And then there are others below him, maybe elders, um, some staff or yeah, a board is often what it's called sort of taking after the business world. Um, And others you would have more elder led. And so the pastor is below the elders. That's, how our church is, although we are part of a denomination, so we are also accountable beyond ourselves. Um, but yeah, that's generally what an evangelical church would right. look like: is the pastor is pretty much the one in charge. It's yeah, his or her church in those cases, and um, mm. uh, you could probably sense from our way we're describing that 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 would be a little bit there would be a rub there between mm-hmm. being evangelical and being reformed i would say correct um, if, if we skip maybe give a preview to the end of how things will go or we'll ask is a reformed church evangelical i would say in this particular case it would be a definitive no mm-hmm. that um we are we have a polity that we follow we have a church order that is um yeah governed by scripture and by people outside of our own church. We're a part of a classis, which is a regional gathering of churches, mm-hmm. and we send delegates to that, and we participate in it, and we have missionaries in the Christian Reformed Church, and right. we are a part of something far bigger than um, the walls of our church. Yeah, and for one example of why we have this, Acts 15, I think, works well. Mm. Um, that there should be some sort of overarching structure yeah um, council in that case of x and being able to bring well. people together um and so and and hearing diverse opinions yeah. on all sorts of different things um you can't make sense of acts 15 if you have a purely uh, congregational approach yeah because any decision in a council would not be binding to right. your own church yeah and as reformed christians we value the decisions of our synod and I would even say we value the decisions of other things that are happening in the Christian world that could really mm-hmm. speak into how we should do church, so to speak. Yeah. So that's another way that um, maybe a definition of evangelicalism that it is very local, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Local, maybe with the exception of sending missionaries out. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, it's Central local. authority, is, there is not much of a high regard for that. Yeah. Any, what, what's another one that you could think of? So one of the other ones that we, I think, discussed was the move now of the evangelical world toward a more charismatic approach or uh, a stream, I guess you could say. The influence of the charismatic or Pentecostal movement really, I mean, it started in the early 20th century in the Azusa Street Revivals. I believe that was 1907 in Southern California um, and has really now changed the face of global evangelicalism or non-Roman Catholic Christianity. Probably the Jesus movement in the 70s and all yeah. that too. Yeah, non-Roman Catholic, non, non-Orthodox. And all Low those church. places, especially in the, in the global South and in the, and in the Asian countries where evangelicalism exists, that, that the stream thrives, but especially in the American... Uh, context in the evangelical church, uh, the Pentecostal 
stream has made a major influence um, and impacts us in so many ways. And so this is now, I think, where evangelicalism is is not only headed, but where, where it has come from yeah. in many ways. And this, again, this sets us apart uh, as a Reformed church um, and as a Reformed tradition, I think, from what often goes as being evangelical today. Yeah, and you would go to a non-denominational evangelical church and essentially find a Pentecostal Assemblies of God charismatic worship service. Even if they didn't, A, say that that's what they were, or B, maybe they don't even realize uh, a lot of non-denominational churches start today and they sort of take after other non-denominational churches. They therefore think that we don't have a a theological tradition that we come from we're sort of just stepping out on our own. We're just Christians, you know? It's just we don't, us and the Bible. It's just us, the Bible. <laughs> but what ends up happening, whether they know it or not, often is that they start to mimic what has been commonplace in the charismatic world. Yeah, um, and, and uh, even within that, I would say, this is a melding of the congregationalist point and the charismatic point, is probably an aversion to intellectualism, Hmm. And um, and so in the congregationalist sense, that would be an aversion to uh, really rigorous study of yeah. theology. Um, and in the, the charismatic sense, it would be, and we don't need to do that because the Spirit speaks today to us. Mm-hmm. And that is true, of course. Uh, yeah. The Bible says that you have God's spirit at work in, in you, and even First John says, and you have no need for someone to teach you, which, mm-hmm. which means you can understand the gospel, yep. and you can apply the gospel and God's law into your life. But within evangelicalism, there is certainly right now an anti-intellectualist um, yeah. uh, bent towards Which is very different from how it was in the 20th century with those names we mentioned earlier, Carl right. Henry, oh, Packer. Schaefer, Packer, even Billy Graham, not much of an intellectual himself, but... He would have promoted Christian thinking on particular issues. Um, yeah, and Eugene Peterson talks in his memoir called The Pastor about how he's from a more charismatic background, hmm. and he said, I'm going to go to seminary. Oh, and yeah. that declaration was offensive to mm-hmm. many people in his charismatic church that w- essentially thought, why would you go study <laughs> like that? That's going to ruin your faith because you're spirit-led you're gifted, you need to just go into this. And even the term pastor in the evangelical world means essentially nothing anymore. Oh, yeah. Because anybody can call themselves pastor. Because there's an anti intellectualism that's like, um, and when I encounter somebody who is a pastor, every once in a while I'll catch myself, and I don't mean this to be rude, and I've, so I've stopped doing it, but I'll say, Where did you go to seminary? Hmm. And so that's my assumption yeah. that a pastor has learned. There's a certain sort of guild. <laughs> yeah, You've all right, gone yeah. through the same steps. But in evangelicalism, I don't think you can yeah. make that assumption anymore no. that a pastor has gone somewhere to get an education on. Mm-hmm. And and you would the, the way that this manifests, maybe for those who are a little bit less inclined towards the intellectual side of things who are listening to this, you would want to know, how does this impact a church? Well, it does in this way where... At an evangelical church, you would almost never hear a reference to any theology, any catechism, Hmm. any church history figure. Mm -hmm. Um, Even the blog of 
a white horse in or a seminary or something like yeah. that would never really make its way into the thought world of yeah. the, the typical evangelical preacher today. Yeah. So the Christianity sort of on offer then in that church is only about as big and as broad as the pastor's personal Absolutely. piety or their, their personal understanding of things. And this is why I think it is helpful to not all the time be quoting other theologians, but commonly re- refer to a sort of a stream or a, a vibrant Christianity that's bigger than just your own perspective. And so this can be accomplished through, yeah, quoting oh, yeah. major church theologians. Um, you don't want to become staunch and, and, and arid and dry and just try to list as many as you can. It's not a theology lecture or a sermon, but you do want to show that there is something beyond just yourself that we're all trying to to follow. There is the great tradition, so to speak, of Christianity. Yeah, and well, and I, part of it makes me sad that people would be missing out on yeah. just having that experience of, I've, I've had um, people come up to me after I mentioned Spurgeon, hmm. and they would say, and I, I bought one of his books, and it was only 80 pages, it was super readable, and yeah. man, it was awesome stuff. Yeah. And it spoke to some of our cultural blind spots because it was written in the 19th century and so mm-hmm. forth. And and you you just don't have that happening yeah. in evangelical churches. And so, again, to jump forward a little bit into is a Reformed church evangelical? Well, we are certainly, um, we may be at times even too intellectualist, <laughs> um, but uh, definitely want to root ourselves in things like the Heidelberg Catechism and yeah, the Belgian totally. Confession and the Canons of Dort. And even beyond that, the creeds, um, ecumenical councils, mm-hmm. um, even the work of medieval Catholic scholars like uh, Anselm and Aquinas. And, Bernard of Clairvaux. Right, and so some awesome stuff from church history that really the evangelical today in mm-hmm. America has very little use for. Yeah, so going back to what we said, this defin- defining feature of, of a lean towards charismaticism, mm-hmm. because of this, there's an immediacy placed on the Holy Spirit, yep. which is a good thing, but then sort of as a as a feature of that, what you get is a sort of a lack of interest or a lack of care for how the spirit has worked in the church's past. It's all about right now. Yeah, exactly. And so there's not really much of a need to be informed by church history. For me, C.S. Lewis is really important on this particular issue. In his famous introduction to On the Incarnation by Athanasius, he basically says, we need the clean sea breeze of the centuries flowing through our minds. And so to do this, for every modern book that we read, we should read three old books from dead people uh, because they were just as likely to go wrong as us, but they were more likely to go wrong in different ways. And they were very likely to go right in the ways that our modern society goes wrong. And so we should understand the great tradition and sort of what he is aiming for there is mere Christianity. Not that we would only have mere Christianity, but that we would understand the, the general flow of the Christian gospel and the church and how theologians and Christians have been led into truth by the spirit throughout the ages. And we see this so much with COVID right now, just to ask the question, how did Martin Luther respond to a pandemic? Sounds weird. (laughs) Right. And it's like, how did a medieval theologian think about, uh, right. And they did think about that. Yeah. And so 
for the Congregationalist, Charismatic, Evangelical, we have to, because it's just the Bible and us, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We have to all of a sudden invent a wheel, you know, that, that yeah. all, like we have to do it in a crisis. Yep. And so it's not even just like reinventing the wheel naturally. It's like we've got to figure out exactly what to do instead of, and, and honestly, that is what mm-hmm. many Christian, not Christian Reformed as much, but many evangelical churches are, that's the predicament they're in, is what in the world yeah. are we going to do now? And mm-hmm. it's like, you just re- read an old book, you know, and, I, and, and I, learn. <laughs> I will often compare this in my thinking to sports, to the development of sports. So as somebody who really likes history, I think anything's history is always really interesting. So you look at any sport and how it develops, the rules are not always immediately clear right from the beginning. But as the game is played more and more, they realize that there are certain rules that are necessary for the benefit of the game and for the fun of the game. And so the game is refined and improved through those rules. Can those rules become a little bit too much? Yeah, sure, they they, they definitely can. It can, it can. It can restrain the fun of the game. But those rules are in place to maintain the perfect fun. That's the goal of rules in a game. And so it's almost as if, you know, basketball, for instance, has a long history of how it all came into being and how all the rules got there. And the rule book is always being added to. Um, It's almost as if somebody came away and said, let's get rid of all these rules and just try to play, you know, just pure basketball. (laughs) <laughs> but then what do you do when, when problems occur during the game, when somebody fouls someone, but there's right. now no rule for it? You have to completely reinvent the rule book. Uh, why shouldn't we listen to the wisdom of those who have gone before us, who have created this rule book and given us a good way of playing this game? Um, is there is there a sense in which that rule book should be reformed? Yeah, sure. It's always an ongoing process. But we shouldn't just throw away the rule book because then we're left without actually playing basketball. Now it's a free for all. And the it sounds like a little bit stodgy to talk about a rule book until you need those rules. So I have <laughs> yeah. I have pastor friends who came out of uh, other streams of even the evangelical world, and they come in and actually one of the great things they value about the Christian Reformed Church is our church order, hmm. because they yeah. say wow, you have a protocol for what yeah. to do when the church, when the pastor and the council aren't getting along together. There's like yeah. a way of handling that here. Yeah. And that is absolutely um, <laughs> gold to a pastor yep. or to an elder or to just a member who could, needs to know when they come in that they're not just making this up. Like uh, to yeah, use the totally. earlier example, the pastor who planted this church isn't just deciding whether or not we're going to have elders and deacons and, <laughs> and an outreach committee and all that. This is and, not a Joseph Smith style church. No, here. right. Well, but honestly, um, I talked with a friend who goes to another nearby church and they're just deciding now that they probably need deacons because there's one person in charge of the checkbook for church, right? And it's Ooh. like, that, that that's, a, that's an evangelical problem yeah. that is very common that is not going to be there in, I would say, a more reformed, mm-hmm. historic um, yeah. congregation. And so anyways, that's that's, very that's maybe another evangelical thing. But I would say, um, going a little bit further, the evangelical emphasis on purity, and hmm. particularly sexual purity, is a distinctly, you would say, evangelical thing in yeah. American church culture. Yeah, sexual purity is, of course, a big one here. 
you could think of the purity ring as maybe this shining example here. And really, what <laughs> we were raised with was focus on the family. Yeah. James Dobson. Yep. James Dobson essentially almost daily for me. <laughs> oh well, he's serving as kind of an evangelical pope for a while. Oh like, yeah. People forget the yeah. power that James Dobson had in the 90s and very yeah. late 80s. I can remember drives to school with my dad listening to James Dobson focused on the family. Well, and uh, and so there's a, there's a lot of good that that he has mm-hmm. done in um, encouraging people to take sexual purity very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's morphed into something a little bit different in like the legalistic abstinence culture yeah. and sex is dirty is eventually is what yeah. gets communicated in some of that education. Yeah, we definitely don't want to take the position of Nadia Boltz Weber and others who have poked fun of this. Uh, there was a recent conference a couple of years ago oh, yeah. where they she had people send in their purity rings and she melted them down and then formed them into a sculpture of something pretty graphic and and we would say wrong <laughs> and atrocious. Wow. Um uh, Might sort as of, well have been a golden cap. Yeah, exactly. Sort of as a middle finger to purity culture. So we're not. We're definitely not going in that direction. We think purity is, of course, a biblical call. Um, but there, this also goes into more general morality of the evangelical yeah. world. You know, the old saying: "Don't don't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls that do." Um, a, a sort of a, a, yeah. a, an antagonism towards sex, drugs, rock and roll. All these things are evil. So then you get this sort of. Uh, evangelical bubble world where we that's secular music and we only listen to the christian version of that we can have all the same style of music but just the lyrics have to be pure and clean and so um and the movies we watch and there's so much here that this goes back to our dichotomy thing yeah it's good to make good choices and to make sure that what you're doing is taking every thought captive and that you're avoiding evil things you're avoiding um, music that is evil or, or entertainment that is evil, but without letting this go into a moralistic yeah, way of doing it. That's all that matters from being a Christian is uh, to not have a glass of wine and like be really proud. How <laughs> and you that, didn't have that is a at your spiritual wedding. thing. You are yeah. so holy now. Yeah, then you really aced life if you didn't have alcohol at your wedding. You should brag about that. And, yeah. And so that that is uh, the extreme, of course, but it is not an absurd extreme because it is real for a lot of yeah. evangelical people. So um, shifting maybe gears a little bit, we could ask, is a reformed, how, how does being reformed um, or even just living biblically jive with modern American evangelical culture or expectations or definitions. It seems to me that the two could be put up as a Venn diagram where sure. there's obviously some correlation between them. But it seems to me more and more that the correlation is beca- beginning to be pretty thin. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I would have said 10 years ago when I first started reading my way into Reformed theology that the two were a lot closer. Um, and I can remember reading, I think it was Daryl Hart, D.G. Hart, um, trying to really say evangelicalism and Reformed theology are not the same thing. And I remember thinking, what's he talking about? And now I can almost say, okay, I think I get it. Um, yeah, I think that there is a lot of distinguishing features that make it at least a very fraught, controversial uh, thing. So I don't walk around myself saying I'm evangelical because I know what that means to most people. 
Um, I, I don't put that on my Instagram bio or my Facebook page. Sure, sure. Um, am I evangelical? And I guess this is where we're, we're heading with this. Yeah. It depends. It's the, the answer that you got probably from your eighth grade teacher uh, when you ask questions. It depends. It's the answer we all hate to hear. Or we could say yes and no. If, if we're using only those four points that we, we started out with, um, conversionism, uh, biblicism, um, which even itself has to be explained, sure. uh, crucif- crucicentrism, and activism, then, then yes, I guess if we describe it with those sort of lowest common denominator terms, I'm okay with calling myself an evangelical. Because really a Christian is about those things. Yeah, exactly. Those are yeah. pretty biblical ideas. There's not much to disagree with. I would say there's a lot more, though. That's the issue with those four points, is that there's so many more things that I would think of as being crucial points of doctrine. Um mm-hmm. That would make me a little bit at least a black sheep in the evangelical world. Um, so when I'm talking to someone who's walking around saying, I'm an evangelical, I just love Jesus, don't call me any other name. I'm not Lutheran, I'm not Calvinist, I'm not Presbyterian, sure. I'm not this, I'm just a Christian. I feel myself sort of being, I feel the difference. I, I feel like there, we're not going to agree on a lot of things. Um, and yeah. Yeah, well, and uh, part of the reason for this topic was when I was reading a blog, um, the blog of uh, a scholar of Reformed theology at University of Edinburgh named James Eglinton, and Mm -hmm. he was Mm -hmm. talking about, uh, he's a scholar on Bavink. He had just written a book called Bavink, A Critical Biography, and um, haven't Mm -hmm. read it yet, but in his very thoughtful blog post was talking about how Herman Bavink, who is a Dutch theologian, um, of the turn of the 19th century, uh, made a trip from the Netherlands where he lived to the United States. Um, he was a man of great theological renown, and so many people in the U.S. wanted to hear him um, give lectures, and I believe he gave the Stone Lectures at Princeton. And the title of this podcast is sort of a nod to yeah, his to, reform to his dogmatics. his reform dogmatics. And, uh, and so anyways, he comes to the States, and he sees what American Christianity looks like, hmm. and I think that he probably is looking at it from a very reformed perspective as he has written reformed dogmatics <laughs> and is a great a titan of yeah. intellectual um rigor and uh so he he actually has a little quote where i want to even read he said um the american is too aware of himself he is too much conscious of his power his will is too strong to be a calvinist <laughs> and that that those words jumped off the page to me, and I thought, man, mm. there's a lot of truth in that. And um, I don't think this means that if you are American, you are de facto <laughs> discredited and uh, de facto excluded from the Reformed tradition. Yeah. However, it does mean that um, American individualism, yeah. evangelical individualism, whether that's congregational individualism or... Um, personal individualism yeah um really will confront uh the the reformed doctrines of absolutely uh, the the call to catholicity the call to be engrafted into the body of christ Mm -hmm. which is throughout the world and uh will mostly confront the person's will Mm -hmm. i think that that's what he's referring to by saying the the will he is too much conscious of his power I think that yeah. as Americans and as evangelicals, we're told um, 
you can do it. You can dream it and be it. Um, it's it's up to you. And there's often some Christian flavoring in. Those yeah, well, mantras. the religious right. You know, it's exactly. sort of about if we can just am- the moral am- majority. amass enough support and yep. get the moral majority, yep. we got this in the bag. Right. And um, it's all up to us. We can do this. We can we can marshal the support that we need and exactly resources. And, and whereas the Calvinist, the reformed person, is a humble sinner, um, totally depraved, dead in transgressions and sins, saved by grace, born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, um, and through the work of Christ. Um, and so, uh, the reformed, the truly reformed person will have, uh, you would say a low view of his natural self. Hmm. And whereas the evangelical, I would say would often have a more American view of the natural self, which is sort of the enlightenment view of, um, you can do it, you can dream it, you can, you can be it, you can achieve the dreams. And so, um, I would say we should hold that term very loosely and um, increasingly in the future um, would probably want to be careful about using the term evangelical, not because of some political reason, but more so because of a biblical reason of saying, yeah. when I say evangelical, um, my secular neighbor will hear me say, they hear me saying, sex is dirty, I hate gays, um, I... Uh, always vote Republican and don't even think about, you know, mm-hmm. whether I'm even going to abstain from voting for a certain candidate. Individualistic, um, nationalistic. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm kind of sort of leaning towards judgmentalism today with the current definitions of evangelicalism as well. Fundamentalism. Yep. Um, I have all kinds of specific views on science and anti-vax and that's starting <laughs> to get and tied up a little bit into it yeah. now. And so, um, is the term worth it, I guess, is what I would want to ask a Reformed Christian. Hmm. And I would say, first, we want to be called Christians, because that's a biblical term. Mm-hmm. Um, second, we want to be called um, Reformed or Calvinistic. I think that's a good thing that sure, helps yeah. to sort of help. It would help somebody figure out where we land theologically. Mm-hmm. Um Calvinistic now has its own meanings and <laughs> misinterpretations from a lot of people as yeah. well. However, it still does fit with what we actually believe. And then um, I would say in-house, we could use a term like evangelical, because I think that Christians would know mm-hmm. um, when we're talking with one another, it means um, founded on the authority of Scripture. Um, it tends to mean low church. Trying to be born again, or not trying to be born again, but focusing on being born again and the importance of that. Yeah, those four things. Those, those, yeah, the, the four, four things. things. That's, I think, what we mean in-house. But Correct. when I go outside the doors of the church and when I talk with a family member who is not a believer and when I yeah. uh, talk particularly about politics, I would want to minimize my devotion to um, the religious right to evangelicalism yeah. and so forth. And so, so it's unhelpful for yourself to, to go around yeah, saying that title. Yeah, I would want to be represented in the, the most clearest, most possible way. Yeah. And then it's unhelpful to them too because you haven't told them the exact truth. What what they're hearing right. from you is not yeah. what you mean to say. And so it's better to, I guess yeah. even if it's a little bit awkward, say, well, I'm not, I don't go around saying I'm an evangelical for X, Y, and Z reason. But sure. But I do hold to, uh, like, the Bible is true. It's God's word. I must live by it. Christ is my Savior and my Lord. He died for me. He rose for me. Mm -hmm. And so on. 
Um, yeah, and so we want to hold on to those gospel distinctives and not just sort of like, and so in that way, evangelicalism has been a good thing generally in keeping f- people focused on yeah. Yeah. the first Corinthians 15 definition of the gospel, mm-hmm. that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was raised. Yeah, I think the, the names we've mentioned did a really good job in the 20th century mm. of sort of setting that in stone. John Stott, for example, The Cross of Christ is a great book about crucicentrism and about the meaning of Christ's death. And so when you hear this a lot in Christian worship too, um, or in evangelical worship is the cross, the cross looms large. um, And Christ himself and Trinitarianism and all all these things that are values in the evangelical church, I would say, yeah, uh, to jump off what you've said, we want to keep these things. Right. But when we're out in public, um, yes, let's be called Christians. <laughs> yes, let's be called the church. Yeah. Um, yes, let's even be, I, I would even be okay with saying I'm a theologically conservative um, orthodox believer. Yeah. Right. Those words are generally helpful. Um, but to go and say evangelical, I, for those who are listening, the secular person hears, I hate gays, sex is dirty, and I love mm-hmm. Trump. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the, those, those are three of the things they hear. Oh, I hate and none science. of those things are true yeah. or should be true probably. Um, yeah. And so, well, and may, maybe, maybe some people are very skeptical of certain scientific theories and they do support Trump. And, um, even then, um, does somebody want to be uh, automatically lumped into a what is becoming derogatory category in the minds of many people? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say it's not worth that risk to use the term, and so therefore we would want to be called Christians who love Jesus yeah. and who, who want to share the gospel with others. I guess I I would almost the only one thing I would add to that I guess is that I'm not I mean, it's not so much that I think we should be scared to use the term. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, it's it's not so much that I'm I, I don't want us to feel like we're dogs with our tails between our legs, so sure. to speak, and we've been berated so much that we can't use this word. I think we should just, for the sake of clarity, yeah, um, and for being declarative and and proclamational, say no. This is what I am. I'm a, I'm a reformed Christian. Reformed Christianity comes from the grand stream of Catholic Christianity, which finds its rooting in the scriptures and in the teachings of the apostles and of Christ. And so I, I think I once heard J.I. Packer say, I'm a Christian, and then I'm a Catholic, then I'm a Protestant, then I'm Reformed, and then I'm Anglican, and then I'm Evangelical. I think it, uh, it may not have been the right order, but it's a, his way of sort of uh, unpacking yeah. what, what he is. Presbyterianism. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that thinking of ourselves in such ways can be helpful it's sort of like russian dolls (laughs) um depending on who you're talking to you can go back to the one that is probably the most helpful sure so for us yeah maybe pulling out the evangelical russian doll wouldn't be the first thing we would want to go to we'd want to say hey look yeah i'm i'm reformed and that means i stand within this this stream of reformed tradition which includes presbyterians and so on Mm. Um, depending on who you're talking to you have to use your own uh yeah judgment your mileage may vary but and maybe i'd throw another bomb in before we close is that 
um, the the reformed person is about the glory of God. We are theocentric. Correct. Whereas I would Absolutely. say the evangelical can be more anthropocentric. So yeah. it's sort of what do I get out of church? What mm-hmm. do I get out of my relationship with God? What do I really get out of this? Is one yep. of is the foundational question for many Arminian evangelical people. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas as reformed people, we are we are declaring the work of God. We are delighting in the grace of God. We are um, loving that God in his mercy would look down on us uh, wretched mm-hmm. sinners and save us. And that that is to his glory yeah. before we even start um, analyzing all the benefits to ourselves. We're just in awe of, mm-hmm. of God and his holiness and his majesty and his grace and his patience and so forth. And so mm-hmm. I would say that would be another distinguishing mark where reformed people would want to be a little bit more careful. We love the glory of God and our lives are centered on him more so than on what we get out of our Christian faith. Hmm. So um, one last thing I would add, (laughs) now we're adding (laughs) things at the end. And I told this to my Sunday school class a few days ago, but because of the individualism sort of cooked in or baked into evangelicalism, which I think if you wanted to do an intellectual history, you could trace back to Finney, the Second Great Awakening, Awakening, and even through that to the Enlightenment and to maybe Schleiermacher and his reaction to the Enlightenment, but sort of an individualism. It's all about our human experience. Um, God's written revelation, special revelation, is not something we can really rely on. What we can rely on is the feelings and the emotions that we have. I think that because of this sort of intellectual history, my projection for evangelicalism, very this may sound ironic given what we've talked about, I think evangelicalism will begin more and more in the next 50 to 100 years to capitulate to culture and to become more progressive mm-hmm. and liberal and will no longer hold to the declarative proclamational truths of the gospel. And I think we're seeing this now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're going to see a, a, a fissure. We're going to see, I think, evangelicals become more and more pro-Trump. Um, wearing the mega hats, and I'm not saying that that stuff is evil. Um, I have mixed feelings towards Trump. I'm not just saying if you vote for Trump, you're an evil person. That is not at all what I'm saying. But there's going to be sort of a a, a deepened uh, conservatism and yeah. reactionism. A political conservatism. And then I think also evangelicalism is going to split more towards uh, becoming more like the culture, uh, just sort of encouraging the culture and what it's doing. Sort of being Just love there. on your neighbor, man. love your neighbor, encourage <laughs> their sin, sort of thing, um, and we're seeing this a lot already in what's being called progressive Christianity. Sure, but I think eventually, younger generations are going to move towards that progressive evangelicalism, and that's where it's going to head. And we also would want to distinguish ourselves from that. Yeah. So right. I think I think that's all we have to say. Um, Unless there's anything you wanted to add. No, that sounds good. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening to episode two, where we discuss uh, sort of the relationship between Reformed theology and evangelicalism. We hope that it's been helpful to you. Go ahead and click subscribe or follow or whatever you need to do to stay in touch with uh, what we got going on here. We hope that it is a benefit to you and a blessing to your life. Um, Thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. See you guys.